there's been no, I will say, very few eras in the history from that church in Jerusalem till today when persecution has rivaled the first era of persecution by the Romans themselves against the Christians. It was awful. Certainly, I would say, nothing rivals the time from Paul's statement to Timothy until the Edict of Milan in 313. Nothing in that period of time, and I'll explain that edict as we move forward here, nothing can compare with what the Christians faced, the persecutions, and it got worse instead of better. Let me, let me give you some key points to keep in mind. These are in your notes. We're considering an era of almost 300 years in this particular session. Conditions, situations, and persecutions were not uniform throughout the period. They became uniform at the end, but not in the beginning. Also, as a general rule, persecution grew more widespread and progressively worsened from, from the, about the time of the end of the New Testament onward till at least 300 A.D. and a few years perhaps beyond that. Also, beliefs within the Christian community were not uniform. I want to tell you in statement of that, the beliefs of those first century Christians were basically uniform. They believed the things that we've just gone through in those uh, core beliefs that marked them. But as a broad idea, Christianity is getting farther as a whole away from New Testament Christianity. Exponentially so. I mean, it's really getting bad. We'll see why. So, uh, even in that big word called Christianity, keep in mind, there are lots of varying ideas. Lots of varying ideas. Widespread varying. So do not assume that all who call themselves Christian held the same belief. I suppose you can understand that better if you ask today, does everybody in the United States of America and the world in 2023 who call themselves Christian believe the same thing? You'd have to say, no way. Well, it was similar to that back then. There were so many differences. Persecution prevailed across belief lines. Whereas the Romans saw the Christians as one unit. They didn't get too involved in the difference between these who are drifting and these who are not drifting and kind of different drifts that were occurring. They just looked at Christianity as a whole. That's what it is. So they just went after people, whoever they were, called themselves Christians or that they could identify as Christians. Well, regardless of what they believed, they even identified as such. They were under the gun. Also, there has never ceased to be a Christian community or churches that insisted on biblical beliefs in Christianity. In spite of all the drift that started and continued and is there today, there have always been loyal Christians true to basic teachings of Jesus Christ that are set forth in the New Testament of your Bible. In addition to persecution, there were lots of other titanic struggles going on in the Christian community like these uh, differences of opinions, these, these different ideas on doctrine. What does this mean? What about Jesus? Was he really God or was he just a God? Or I mean, this lot of that kind of stuff we'll visit. 
Let me talk about the initial persecution of Christians from time Jesus was crucified on the cross, and it was a Roman crucifixion. However, even that crucifixion was pretty well precipitated by the Jews. They were the leaders. They were the ones who stirred it up and got the Romans to get on board. And they didn't have the authority to kill him, but they said we'd get the Romans to do it because we would. So the Jews were the, were the, were the perpetrators of trouble at the very beginning, from the time of Christ. And then for the next few years, they're at the head of the line persecuting Christians. Um, the Romans viewed Christianity in a different way. At this early age, they didn't see uh, the, the Christians as a different group. They thought the Christians were just a brand of Jews, sort of different sect of the Jews. You know, they already used to sects. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were familiar with different groups under the umbrella of Judaism. So they viewed Christianity under the umbrella of Judaism. The Romans did, but I will assure you the Jews didn't. They never saw Christianity as a part of Judaism. They never saw it as a part of what they had taken from Moses and claimed as theirs, Judaism. They saw these Christians as a direct affront to what Jews had believed all these centuries. Orthodox Jews saw it as a affront and a corruption of their religion and consequently as a threat. And that made them eager to destroy these Christians, to do what was Paul planning to do? Do away with this name. That's his mission. He stated that was what he was wanting to do. Get rid of these Christians. Let's wipe them off the planet. The Jewish leadership beat and it threatened the apostles. You read that in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40. The Jewish leadership stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 7 in the last few verses. So you, you can see right here in the, the New Testament book of Acts, which is the history of the New Testament history book, that this is recorded. This tells you who's doing it. The Jews are leading the charge. They're the ones that are really openly anti-Christian. Once Paul converted to Christianity and began to evangelize the Christian message, then he also became a target. He was making others a target when he saw the light. And that's kind of funny, but that's literal. He really did see the light on the road to Damascus. When he got saved, when he really came to know who Christ was, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, Boy, he, he began to go and preach this message. And I have a bunch of scriptures there in your notes will show you how the Jews got on his case. I mean, they were after him. We're going to shut you up. So now you are turncoat on us. When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, as I indicated a little earlier, the Jewish back was pretty well broken. And as a result, uh, Jewish persecution began to, to taper down. And not didn't totally stop, but it got not. They couldn't do it like they used to. They just didn't have the means to persecute the, the Christians like they once did. Besides, Christianity had gotten too big. Got outside of Jerusalem and outside of Judea and that area. It had gotten over into other places like Egypt, North Africa, and these other spots. So it was harder for the Jews to have any influence over them and do what they were doing. Let me talk about persecution by the pagan Romans. When I say pagan Romans, that's sort of a uh, a way of describing um, Rome is not necessarily a good way in my opinion, but it's perhaps explanatory in that pagan Rome talks of Rome before Constantine made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. After that, it's, 
Rome is called uh, Christian Rome. They weren't any more Christian after that conversion, the slow conversion, than they were before, but still it's called Christian Rome. So it's just means of history of describing this era of time, first 300 years versus the uh, several years that several hundred years it started with 300 and onward. So once uh, Rome came into Christian came to view Christianity as a separate religion from Judaism, and it, you, you got to put yourself in that place and realize they're just waking up. I mean, they've been concentrating on these troublesome Jews and finally putting them down in seventy, and getting rid of that. Now we've solved the issue, but all of a sudden now these Christians are just stirring up trouble everywhere. They're getting people saved, and they're getting people that are not doing what the Romans think they ought to be doing. It's a mess. So they say, hey, these Christians are not the same as those Jews. We've conquered the Jews, but these Christians are somebody else. So they, when they begin to wake up, sort of come alive to who these Christians really were, they begin to persecute Christianity as a religio illicita. As I said, Rome prided itself in religio illicita, or freedom of religion, but now they're declaring Christianity to be an illegal religion in Rome. We will tolerate all the other religions, but we're not going to tolerate these Christians. Yeah, kind of sounds like America today to me, but that's not our subject. So despite her claims and practices of religious tolerance, Rome was fundamentally intolerant. As we're seeing our own country become more and more intolerant, especially toward anybody that bucks the system of atheism and any kind of promiscuity and uh, any God ideas that are on the marketplace. The Rome state was thoroughly interwoven with heathen idolatry and had made idolatry, religion, a tool of the state long before Christianity. So they're they're now looking at what are we going to do with this new bunch out here that's causing us this new grief. How are we going to deal with these Christians? There are reasons why the Romans, pagan Romans, persecuted uh, Christians. Christians accepted one and only one God. What did the Romans say? You can have your God, anyone you want, but you've got to accept all these other gods. You can't say their God is wrong. You can't say it's wrong to be an atheist. It's wrong. You've got to say it's okay. You just do what you want to do, tolerate everybody else, let them alone, and don't say anything against them. Well, Christian practices often generated suspicion and antagonism. Not only did they believe in this one God idea, but the Romans began to persecute them because that what they were doing generated antagonism. For example, uh, the Romans, when they heard about the blood of Christ and the body of Christ and these Lord's Supper events where they drink my blood and eat my flesh, they took that literal and they accused Christians of being cannibals. They're eating each other up over there. That's how the Romans looked at it. Also, uh, Christians were against, basically against murder and killing so they had a problem with the Roman army and its brutality, killing people, especially innocent people. So the Roman, when these Christians didn't fit in their military system so well, they began to accuse these Christians of being unpatriotic. You're not supporting a state. 
You're not supporting the military. You're not doing the citizen's job to do. Also, Christians were enthusiastic. They were zealous. They were, they were very evangelistic. They would talk to people and people were getting converted. They were telling them this story of this risen Christ and <laughs> all that he was and how he could have eternal life. And they were doing that. And that went against Rome. They didn't like somebody telling a story other than the Roman story. Furthermore, Christians believed in the equality of all men before God. Equality of all men. Red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. That was not a Roman idea. The Roman society as a whole was a class system. The upper class and the lower class and not much of a middle class. So down here on the bottom, you have the servants. Well, they say that 60% of the city of Rome, several uh, a million or so more in that day, about 60% of them were slaves. They weren't all black, a lot of them were, but they were slaves that had been conquered in Egypt or in somewhere else in the world. And they made slaves out of them. And it's the way they, the slaves did the work. And the people that owned the slaves profited off their work, kind of like the South and the United States at a point in time. We do the work. So it, it was a, it, it, here are these Christians coming along talking about people have spirits and souls and they need to be saved whether they're slaves or not. And they're just as precious to God as they are uh, as, as any, any person that's a rich person. That didn't go well with Rome. They didn't like that story at all. It's messing with their, their economy. Really, uh, Christians didn't believe you ought to work on Sundays. They believed you ought to be in the house of God on Sunday. Well, what do you mean, buddy? You go to work on Sunday, and of course, slaves, a lot of them had to. They didn't have a choice. But I mean, the Romans were reckled with the practices of these Christians about working uh, on Sundays and about honesty. Christians called into question a lot of their business deals. You don't question us. We're making money off of these. We don't, we don't want to hear that. So we don't want you doing those things. Romans also believed Christians were responsible for natural disasters. They thought you're winning our people to your God, and our gods are mad about it, and they're causing storms and earthquakes and volcanoes. And so the general populace of Rome, including many of the leaders, began to say, it's the, what these Christians are doing. That's the reason we're having all these earthquakes. That's the reason we're having all this bad stuff happen in our country. Boy, it got really, really bad uh, about 150, 200 years down the road. Many Christians were poor and a social rank. And I think it's still that way in most of the world. People do not respect poor people. For the most part, they're just down there and so that's the way they are, and they're lazy and no good, and they won't work, and they're, you know, we make all kinds of things. But that's how the Christians, many of them were poor, not all, but the Romans looked at them with disdain. You're the sort of the slum of the earth. You're the ghetto people down here. Christians got in trouble with the Roman officials and with Roman citizens, not just the officials, but the neighbors that were Romans and pagan Romans. And here's what happened when they got called into court. Here's some of the things that uh, we need to note. When Christians were taken into court, legal reasons were needed 
If you're going to sue somebody, you're going to bring them into the court. You've got to have a charge. What's wrong? Why are you bringing them in here to this court? So they needed legal reasons. And because Christians rejected the myriad of other gods embraced by the Romans, they were accused of being atheists. Yeah. You don't believe in all our gods. You're an atheist. Not enough you believe in your God. That don't make, you're really an atheist. I want to give you a specific example. Hopefully you've heard of a man named Polycarp. He was a pastor of the church in Smyrna that's mentioned in the second chapter, third chapter of, of uh, the Revelation. Many people believe that Polycarp was a contemporary of the Apostle John. He, Polycarp, was burned alive in 155 A.D. Also, Polycarp said this, He who grants me to endure the fire will enable me to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. Most of the time when they burned somebody, they tied them to the stake or somehow fixed them where they couldn't get away. Polycarp said, don't tie me. I'll go in there and die for my God voluntarily. So he wasn't nailed down. And his followers said as Polycarp burned to death, that it looked like gold or silver being tried in the fire. Let me give you Polycarp's last words. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever let me do, done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for dining me worthy this day and this hour that I may be among the martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about pagan Rome persecuting Christians in real cases. He's just one case. There is lots of cases. Christians refused to worship the emperor. When they did, Christians were accused of, of being disloyal and of, of being guilty of treason. You can't say that the Caesar is a god and you're a treasonous. It's wrong. Not only did they accuse him of being atheist, took that into court, like in Polycarp's case, but others, like I said, they just said, you're not loyal because you don't worship the emperor and our other gods here. Romans accused the Christians of sex orgies, love feasts, incest, and cannibalism, as I've already indicated. So the Christians were considered immoral people, very immoral people, having sex with their children and each other and just wild people. That's what the Romans uh, claimed about them. Not that the Romans had much reason to speak or any grounds to stand on, but that's what they did. Let me tell you how the pagan Romans persecuted Christians. I'll give you just an overview here. There's what is called the sporadic area, or era, not area, era. This means persecution against Christians was not universal in the whole Roman Empire, and it was not continuous. It occurred here and there. And the most notorious, perhaps, or at least one of the most notorious of those who did it was Nero who was living in the time of the Apostle Paul and is no doubt responsible for Paul's death and Peter's death. Let me tell you about Nero, 54 through 68 A.D. Nero came to power in Rome in 54. He was responsible at first and very reasonable and popular person. However, Nero dreamed of grandeur and of pleasure. He just lusted for pleasure. 
And on the night of June the 16th in AD 64, a great fire broke out in Rome. The Roman pagan historian Tacticus, he said that Rome, that Nero had wanted to, to destroy certain parts of Rome and rebuild them, and that he therefore instigated the fire, and he made sure that the places, the areas of Rome, districts that he didn't like, got burned. That he planned all of this. And so that happened, but two areas, two of the districts in Rome didn't burn. And these two districts had high populations of Jews and of Christians. So when Rome burned, Nero was under scrutiny. He got under the gun. He got badmouthed, and they were talking about him and his setting the fire and so on. So Nero needed a scapegoat to blame the fire that he apparently had set himself. Who was better to blame than the Christians who lived in the areas that didn't burn and the Jews who lived there? Even Tacticus, who hated Christians and thought they deserved scorn and punishment, was shocked by Nero's very bad tactics. Here's what he said. Before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire in the night so that they might illuminate the city. They actually took, as you can see in the picture here, they took like we'd call posts, trees, cut them, and mounted Christians up here, tied them up here, and poured uh, liquid uh, fuel on them and set them on fire so that they could walk down the street in the city, especially in front of the, the uh, place where the leaders met, you know, in, in that area of Rome. Sad. I mean, this guy was persecuting Christians. It wasn't all over the empire, but he needed a scapegoat, so he persecuted the Christians. And it was not just a little. Then he was followed later, few years later, actually, by a, guy named, by a man named Marcus Aurelius, and he was a Stoic. Stoicism is a Greek philosophy that holds that men should be free from passion and unmoved by either grief or joy. So you should be Stoic. You should never show any emotion. Because of their refusal to worship him, Marcus Aurelius considered the Christians disloyal. You're not with me. You're therefore uh, disloyal people. He encouraged the people of Rome to take advantage of every opportunity to persecute Christians. Sick them. Do it. You got my backing. I'll, I'll, you, you just do whatever you want to these Christians. This is the time that the famous apologist named Justin Martyr was put to death in Rome, AD 166. Another Caesar came on the scene. And meanwhile, Rome is losing its glory. It's going downhill. It's degenerating from within. This man's name was Commodus. Commodus was a brutal military man. The Roman Empire was in this decline that I just mentioned, and so a scapegoat was needed, and Commodus found Christians to be that scapegoat, not for burning Rome, the city, but just for the decline of Rome and all the bad things that are going on. It's the Christians who are our problem here, kind of like Hitler did with the Jews. Let's blame them, and let's get rid of these people. They're in our way. Only an affection he had for a Christian named Marcia 
abated his wrath and brutality against Christians. Uh, by the goodness and I guess the grace of God, we'd have to say, uh, he liked this particular lady who was a Christian, and because he liked her so much, it held him back a little bit from some of that brutality. Then he was followed by a guy named uh, Septimus Service, and Service proposed to bring all his subjects together under worship of the sun, soul invictus, the worship of the sun, the unconquered sun, and all gods were to be accepted as long as one acknowledged the sun god, and it was premium or prominent over all the others. It's known syncretism, and Christians absolutely refused the idea they bowed up and rather die than accept the worship of the sun, and they would not renounce Jesus Christ and the God of heaven in order to do that. So a lot of them died. You can just see they became real targets. Servius' uh, response was brutal and widespread. Persecution of Christians really ensued. In fact, it accelerated then. Clement of Alexandria wrote this. He said, many martyrs are daily burned, confined, and beheaded before our eyes. Here's one guy who's on the scene who was literate enough to write, and that's what he said. That's the sporadic area. As things move forward here, though, they come to what is called the universal era. Uh, this, this era uh, of time, let me be sure I'm telling you right here. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I missed the organized era, era here and kind of skipped a page here. Uh, go back to do, back a page, and let me backtrack here to do, do mission. The mission was a very suspicious guy. He followed Nero pretty soon after Nero, and this is in that sporadic area. Domitian put many Christians to death. He put his cousin to death. He confiscated Christians' property. He took churches. He took their property away from them. Uh, he destroyed many of the surviving descendants of King David, tried to get rid of all the family of Jesus Christ. He's accredited with the death of Mark and Andrew, Onesimus and Dionysus, the Arapagite that's mentioned in the book of Acts. So I'm backtracking just a little here to get to the organized era, and that's the one that Marcus Aurelius was in. And I won't talk about Trajan or Hadrian or Antoninus Pius. There's information in your workbook there. You can read that later because we're having to really squeeze time here and get on as far as we can. But let me just go to the universal era. This is the one that was really, really awful. I mean, it's awful enough what I've been describing, but the universal era of pagan Rome persecution means that persecution was everywhere throughout the empire all the time. And under the direction of the government, they were orchestrating it. I want to talk about this man named Decius. Uh, there's a little conflict in these uh, one of these graphs or charts that you have in this, but he was there from 49, 249 to 251. He didn't stay around a long time. Thank God he didn't. But let me tell you about Decius. He resolved to return Rome to her former glory. He wanted to take Rome, the Roman Empire, back to where it was just glamorous like you'd read in the days of Julius Caesar or in terms of Tiberius or some of those earlier Roman Caesars. He wanted to bring her old religion back and root out Christianity and any atheistic sect and seditious sect that was in there. He just wanted to get them back to the old glory. Take them back home. In A.D. 250, Decius published an edict to all the governors of the provinces adjoining them to return to the state religion under the heaviest penalties. If they didn't do it, it's going to be war on them. So he said, you've got to, you got to do it. 
This persecution was the first to cover the entire empire, the entire empire, and consequently produced a far greater number of martyrs than any had before because it's so general and just more people are dying. And so we're talking to now millions of people. In these 300 years, we're talking about 300 million people dying, not to mention the ones that got beat up, cut up, and wounded in one way or another. The edict required every Roman citizen to annually sacrifice number one to the Roman gods and number one to the Roman Empire. Not just acknowledge them, but now you've got to go in and do a little sacrifice, give them a little gift, do a little ceremony for them. And when these people went in and sacrificed, he had to go to an official, like a sheriff or a ruler, some anybody in authority, offer your incense, do your little ritual, pledge allegiance to the emperor, and acknowledge him as a god, and do it to other religions. When you would do that, he would get, you would be given or issued a libellus. That's what they call it, a libellus. It's in your notes. A libellus was a certificate of allegiance and compliance with the Rome, religious stance of Rome. That is, we agree with the religious system. We acknowledge the emperor as a god. We acknowledge all these uh, uh, other religions, mystery religions they call them, like the one from Egypt and the one from Euphrates and all these different mystery religions. We acknowledge them and we acknowledge the pantheon the room full of Roman gods, which they adopted from the Greeks. Zeus, Jupiter, all of those. We acknowledge all of them. So if you would do all that, you could get a libellus. Well, you can believe that went over with Christians about zero. I mean, they didn't, no, they wouldn't do that. But the libellus, if you didn't have one and you got caught by an official, they could kill you on the spot without a trial. And they did. Lots and lots of people died because they didn't have a libellus, and the Romans just took them out of the way. Were you going to do it or die? This persecution lasted only until the death of Decius in 251. However, many were maimed and, and absolutely uh, died with other diseases, gangrene and different things like that as a result of what Decius did in those two or three years that he was doing what he did. And I have to talk to you about Diocletian, 284 to 305. Diocletian was a strong military guy whose ambition was also to restore Rome to her former glory. We're going to do this this time. We're going to succeed. At first he was sympathetic to the Christians, but he had an adopted son whose name was Galerius. And Galerius convinced uh, Diocletian that Christians were a great threat to the empire. He said, they're your enemy. You've got to get rid of these people. He convinced the leader, the, the Caesar, despite the fact that his wife and his daughter and many of his most loyal and faithful people in Diocletian's house, uh, in his court, uh, were loyal to him and good people, Diocletian determined that he would completely destroy Christianity. He's going to do away with it. He thinks he has the power to make it happen. So around 295 A.D., a number of Christians were condemned to death, some for refusing to join the army. That was a big reason why a lot of Christians died for joining the military, primary army, and others for trying to leave the army. They couldn't do, so they tried to get out of it, and they were, of course, condemned for being traitors. Uh, 
or uh, uh, going AWOL, you know, deserters. In 303, Diocletian issued a rapid set uh, in rapid succession three edicts. Each one of them was more severe than his predecessor. He was not the sole ruler of Rome at the time. Um, his eastern counterpart issued the fourth and worst of all these on April the 30th in 304. Here it is. Christian churches were to be destroyed. All copies of the Bible were to be burned. All Christians were to be deprived of public office and civil rights. And last of all, without exception, were to sacrifice to the gods upon pain of death. We talk about persecution here. We don't really know much about it. None of us really have any experience or close connection with anything of this nature. This is terrible persecution. In 304, Diocletian became quite ill. He's the emperor. Galerius, his uh, stepson, forced him to abdicate, and Galerius seized the throne. He became then the self-imposed uh, emperor of Rome. It was a very unpopular move on the part of Galerius. So the Galerius decided to ask Diocletian to come back and restore order because he's got chaos going on. He can't, he can't control it. It's kind of funny to me. Diocletian said, no, I'm not coming back. I'd rather raise cabbage. He'd gone into the cabbage raising business after he became no longer an emperor. So he just said, I'm not going to do it. Shortly thereafter, Galerius, the stepson, who's now the self-imposed ruler, he became very, very ill with a very painful disease. Many, of the, many think that the Christians convinced him that his disease was a direct result of punishment from God. That you are so evil that God's doing this to you. On April the 30th of 311, Galerius made a proclamation that all Christians be pardoned and that they could again worship and practice Christianity. You see how the worm can turn? Especially in that kind of anti-God, don't believe in God type society, believe in all these idols and that rum stuff. Two years later, Constantine and Licinius, who was a uh, co one of the three rulers in Rome at the time, one of the three main heads. Constantine Licinius, ten years later, uh, or uh, I think it was ten, two years later, issued the Edict of Milan, formally ending the persecution of Christians by the state. Well, the Christians were glad. I mean, the ones that lived and, of course, were still alive, not so maimed up. I mean, even the maimed were glad that hopefully that rule of terror is over for us. I want to stop right there because we'll pick back up in the morning there. But I want to get to this point-by-point -point contrast that's in your notes. And let's just look. The deep departure of many churches. And tomorrow we will see what the departures were in greater depth. But the deep departure of many churches from the core beliefs, that group that I mentioned earlier, and practices of biblical Christianity is evident when you look at the church that Jesus established in Jerusalem, Israel, and then compare it to one of the regular churches or the state churches 300 years later. In that 300-year period that we've been talking about what has been happening to the Christians, really all that even profess Christians the true Christians as well as those who are departing. But we're looking now at the ones who departed. And what is common of a church that departed from the church like Jesus built? 
Here are comparisons and contrast. In the original churches, at the church of Jesus' time, it was church, like Northwest Baptist, and churches, churches of Laodicea, the churches of Galatia. 300 years later, in AD 325, and I use that date because that's when the Council of Nicaea met, and I'll talk about councils in that particular one later. 325 AD, the church generally was viewed as invisible, or, or, or excuse me, visible and universal. That is that the church, the real church, consists of all churches. They're not really churches. They're one big church that you can see, and they're universal. It's wherever there's a church, they're part of it. That's the idea. It had changed that much. Furthermore, looking back to the first church, at that time, Jesus was considered to be the head of the church. By 325, churches were headed by a system of priests. In Jesus' time, each church member was equal. There was no hierarchy in the churches. 325 members were not equal. There was a priesthood, a hierarchy, a a, an episcopate set up where you had ruling people that were not same as the ordinary people who were not rulers. In Jesus' time, the Bible was the only rule of faith and practice. The only one. By the time of the Council of Nicaea, tradition was the ruling factor. Tr church tradition took precedent over the Bible. It's not what the Bible says, it's what the church says the Bible says. That's what we do. The first churches were congregationally run, congregational government. Everybody had a voice. You can see it in the first chapter of Acts. In this 300 years later churches, there was Episcopalian government. Churches were being run by mainly one head and then some under the head, kind of the Catholic system of today. In the church that Jesus established, salvation was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way people were eligible to become a member of a church. You had to be saved to get in it. 300 years later, salvation was attained through rites and rituals. You kept the sacraments. You did the Lord's Supper. You had confirmation. You had all these things. That made you a, a, a member of a church and a Christian made you saved. Furthermore, in Christ's day, Membership was made up of only saved people. 300 years later, membership was mainly made up of partakers of rituals. If you did the right stuff, particularly by then, if you got baptized as a baby. In Jesus' day, members consisted of baptized believers. 300 years later, membership in those liberal churches was by baptism and not belief. Not baptized believers, but by baptism. That's the reason they baptize babies. Baptize others, not just babies, but not believers. In Jesus' day, the only, only the saved were eligible for baptism. 300 years later, faith in Christ was not a baptism requirement. I'll tell you a story that will curl your hair tomorrow about how a whole army got converted in one day by being sprinkled crazy. In Jesus' day, baptism was only after a profession of faith. 
by the time we were looking at this 300 years later, infant baptism was the rule. In fact, the state had already, or at least the most the hierarchy had already said, you have to do it or we're going to persecute you if you don't baptize your baby. Baptism was by immersion. When Jesus himself was immersed in the eighth chapter of Acts, Philip goes down, here's a Ethiopian man coming through, and they're going through the Gaza Strip. And Philip tells him about Jesus. He trusts Jesus, and he said, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And both of them went down in the water, and they came up. That's immersion. They went in the water. They didn't just stand there and sprinkle each other. <laughs> they went in the water. Baptism by sprinkling, of course, by pouring 300 years later. The first church in, in Jesus' day, and those that were like it in that first century Christianity, Ordinances were memorial, like we take the Lord's Supper as a remembrance feast. 300 years later in those liberal churches, ordinances were redemptive. You do this in order to get saved or get right. In the first century Christianity churches, there were permanent officers. They were pastors and deacons. 300 years later, the permanent officers were a system of priests a hierarchy of priests, bishops and archbishops and so on. Also in that first church and those like it in that first century, there was free will giving. You gave because you chose to. All service to God must emanate out of a free will. You do it because you choose. You go to church because you choose. You tithe because you choose to. You know it's the right thing to do. Your own heart moves you to do it. 300 years later it was forced. You do it or pay a fine. You do it or go to jail. You give or take a beating. That church of Jesus, in that day, each church was autonomous. By 313, Constantine had declared Christianity to be the state religion, so there was a state church. Each church was not autonomous at all. Furthermore, that first century church, or churches, those, uh, they considered Christianity to be a spiritual warfare. 300 years later, it was not spiritual at all. It was physical. We're going to make you do it. That's probably a good place to stop, don't you think? I'm giving you back a little minute. I may take it back tomorrow. <laughs> I'm just, we're going to have a full day tomorrow. And the Lord willing, we'll be here at 9 o'clock. I hope to start at 9, not 9.01 or 9.02. 9 o'clock will be going, and, and we'll move right through three sessions tomorrow. If you want to read ahead, it's right in the book you got tonight. I have a different color, cover than yours, but the inside's the same. So you can read ahead or do whatever, because you can see I'm not just reading these pages. I need to talk to you about them. <laughs> I just need to tell you some other stuff that I didn't have time to put here and put into your notes. But I thank you for being here. And appreciate your patience, and and somebody else can come, they can catch up, and I will tell you that uh, Brother Nathan Bragdon and Brother Bob um, Simpson, they're in the sound room, and they've been working pretty hard to get this where they could record it. Yeah. So they have done that, and have even I think live streamed tonight, and think we'll do that tomorrow and even Sunday, but hopefully in the not too distant future, these lectures will all be on YouTube. And they'll be here for people who couldn't maybe come or for whoever in the future would be profited by them. Brother Darren, you want to say any more before we go? Close us, please.
Did we did we turn off the broadcast? Y'all can. That's the best way to end a broadcast, right? Is a, just a random question. Yeah. Um, this is not always the easiest thing, but I'm so blessed that Brother Lester has.